Congregation, you know what the seventh commandment is, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. That is the subject tonight. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Before we go there, let us first read from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 41, on page 78. Gives us an idea of what this commandment is about. Lord's Day 41. Question 108. What does the seventh commandment teach us? Answer. That all uncleanness is accursed of God. And that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same. And live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. And question 109. Does God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? And since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, he commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, work, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men hereto. So far. How to specifically repent of sin against the seventh commandment? It covers the sermon tonight. Again, how to specifically repent of sin against the seventh commandment. You hear three thoughts in this. In the first place, you talk about the seventh commandment. Secondly, the call to repent. And in the third place, specific points. How to specifically repent of sin against the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment, the call to repent, and also specific points. Congregation, young friends, children, how can we possibly know God? Can we know him? Is it even possible to know God? He is everlasting, infinite, holy, we would say beyond comprehension, and we are just creatures, finite, small, insignificant creatures in the universe. How can we comprehend and grasp who God is. Is it not absolutely impossible? Should we not say that we can't? Nothing? How can we know God? Well, God reveals himself. For example, in nature, in the trees and the, and, 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 and the mountains and the sky and the colors and the, the flowers and the trees, he reveals his power his design, his wisdom, we can know God somehow, somewhat from nature. It's the natural knowledge of God, the natural theology. But that's not very personal. It's knowing something about God. Is it possible to also have a relationship with God? Is it possible to know him personally? Are your feelings involved? Are emotions there as well? Yes. And the Lord has also used means for that, to reveal himself that way. 
and what has created mankind in such a way that people can experience things and can personally know God somehow. Sounds kind of strange. One of the reasons why the Lord has created sheep is to show people that sheep follow a shepherd. To use an example for himself, God is the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. How could we understand that text, the Lord is my shepherd, if the Lord had not created shepherds and sheep? Yes, he has so, for a purpose. So from eternity, God had in mind to create shepherds and sheep so that he could reveal himself in that, in that order to mankind and say, I am the shepherd of the sheep. So that's why sheep were able to be domesticated. God want to know, want to show that he is tending his sheep. Strongly, that is the example of a father, as we heard this morning hour. A father caring, pitying, compassionate about his children and his sons and daughters, also prodigal sons and prodigal daughters. So God has made mankind in such a way that all people kind of understand a little bit what a father is like. We all have a father. So the reason why the Lord has created mankind with fathers and mothers is to also show himself, show as the father of eternity. And that includes feelings. The notion of a father is not a cold description. It reveals love and care and closeness and fellowship. We, of course, think of the father welcoming his prodigal son. It is heartwarming to hear who God the Father is. He is the Father before there were fathers. In a similar way, God revealed himself as a husband. As a husband. So God has made mankind husband and wife for a reason to show something of himself, to reveal himself. So before the Lord has put Adam and Eve together, he's already in mind a church, his bridal church, he being the husband and they being his wife. For the reason the Lord made this world in such a way that we understand something of a relationship between husband and wife, so we can relate that to God, understand something of who the Lord is. And God doesn't only love and care and guide and governs and protect. Not only is he a shepherd and loves his church as his own body, he also has deep personal care for his bridal church. Let me prove that from the Bible. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. So God is there. Bridegroom of his church. And he is rejoicing in the bride. He loves the bride, rejoicing in the bride. He thinks to love the bride. Or John three twenty nine, he that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, which my joy therefore is fulfilled. John the Baptist was happy about that to bring the bridegroom and the bride together. Or Revelation 21, And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God, out of heaven, prepared as a bride 
the door for her husband. So in order to know God, God says, look at, look at the sheep and the shepherd. Look at the father and the children. Look at husband and wife. That's who I want to be. Want to be. That's how I am. I am a caring, loving, personal God. And before we go further, let us do a case study on Ezekiel 16. It might be helpful if you open the Bible to that chapter, and I will just guide you through the chapter. It's a long chapter, very long chapter. I would have chosen, I would have chosen to read it tonight if it, was not, if it were not so long, 63 verses. Let's, let's see a few of those verses and see what you, what you, what you learn about God and Christ. Verse, verse 3. And say, thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother an Hittite. So the church of God, the bride of God, is originally a pagan church. He found the church as a Hittite and as Amorite, as non-Israelites. Because there was no Israel. Abraham was a pagan himself. That's how the Lord found his bride, the Israel, his bride. But what bride was it at this time? Verse 4. And as for thy nativity in the day thou wast born, thy nail was not cut, neither was thou washed in water to soup away. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swelled at all, non I pity thee. So do you see the child? A lost child, a neglected child, would say a dead child. It's dead. It's, it's almost dead. It's actually dead. It's supposed to die. And no, I pity the child. Nobody liked it. But someone passed by and saw the child and was filled with compassion. Verse 6. When I, when I passed by, I saw thee polluted in thine own blood and said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. So the Lord came by, saw that baby, dirty and dying, and said, live. A, a picture of what? That's a picture of Regeneration, picture of a new heart. Live. The power of God said, live, and that baby began to live. That is Israel. And Israel grew up as a girl. I've caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxed great. Verse 7. And then hair is grown. Whereas thou wast naked and bare. When I passed by thee, I looked upon thee. Behold, that thy time was the time of love. So the next step is that the Lord is going to call for that girl. Not only keep it alive and care for it, he also marries the child. I spread my skirt over thee, verse 8, and covered thee in thy nakedness. I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant. And the verse 8, a covenant with thee, says the Lord, and thou becamest mine. So Israel was found as a pagan child. The Lord raised it, married it, made a covenant with it. That refers also to the covenant of grace and the covenant also of, of, an, of marriage, right? And then look at verse 14. 
and thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty. It was a beautiful bride, for it was beautiful through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. So the child was almost dying. The Lord sighed. The Lord was compassionate over it. The Lord cared for it. She grew up. The Lord entered into a covenant, and she was a beautiful woman, a beautiful bride. But now, verse 15, But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and played the harlot, because of thy renown, and pourest out thy fornications on everyone that passed by. His it was. So that child that was found on the field, and raised by the Lord, and married by the Lord, with, with the Lord, is so beautiful in itself. It could have been such a beautiful relationship. Israel and the Lord, see, played the harlot, spread of her beauty, and didn't only sell herself, she paid herself for her fornications. Look at verse 21. That thou hast slain my children and delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire for them. That's what Israel did. Israel had abortions. Israel laid the children in, in the fire. They, 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 they killed them. And in all thine abominations, 22, and thy whoredoms, thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, when thou wast naked and bare, and wast polluted in thy blood, was not for, was, was forgotten, how the Lord has been careful for them, as he has cared for them. And verse 28, thou hast played the whore also with the Assyrians, because thou wast insatiable, never enough, Yea, thou hast played a harlot with them, and yet couldst not be satisfied. How weak is thine heart, verse 30. Therefore a harlot, verse 35, he the word of the Lord. Verse 38, I will judge thee. Verse 39, I will also give thee into their hand, and they shall throw down that eminent place, and shall break down thy high places. So the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. It goes on in this chapter about how bad it was with Israel. For example, in verse 47, Yet hast thou not walked after their ways, not done after their abominations, but as if that were a very little thing, thou was corrupted more than they in all their ways. So it was worse than the Syrians and worse than the Babylonians. Verse 51, neither has Samaria committed half of thy sins. So it was bad. And yet, he turned the page to verse 58. Thou hast borne thy lewdness and thine abominations, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord God, I will even deal with thee as thou hast done, which has despised the oath in breaking the covenant. The hopeless, hope situation, right? Found, raised, married, put his beauty on the, on the bride, and yet such an unfaithful woman. He would say, get rid of her. He would say, end it. Divorce the Lord. Never, never, never come back to her anymore. And then verse 60, 
that touched me. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. Verse 62, And I will establish my covenant with thee. Thou shalt know that I am the Lord. That's the purpose. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Thou shalt know that I am the Lord alone, that nobody else can do that. I can forgive. I can be kind. I can be faithful to an unfaithful people. Forgiveness with the Lord. So that people may glorify him and, 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 and will know that he is the Lord. It ends with verse 63. That thou mayest remember and be confounded and never open thy mouth anymore because of thy shame. And I am pacified. Pacified. The Lord was so angry with that people that he was pacified. He made atonement. He, had, he, he, he provided forgiveness with them. For all thou hast done, say the Lord God. So why is this important? As a case study. We see here who God is. We see who we should be. We should be in our marriages. We should be faithful. And close to the Lord. And not staying away from him. And not playing the heart with others. With the world. In sin. As the Lord is keeping his covenant. Nevertheless, 1 Corinthians 7 to 10. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. And let every woman have her own husband. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from their husband. So the Bible speaks about a relationship between God and the church as a covenant, as a covenant of marriage, as, somehow, as, a, as a bond in which we have to be faithful. And that teaches us something about us and teaches something about our relationships in our marriages. Because the Lord wants us to reflect that. The Lord wants us to mirror that. The Lord wants us to, wants us to live in such a holy way because he is holy. You know, do you know a country with two kings? I don't. Well, it won't work. And the king, if he feels threatened by someone else, he probably will kill the king in the olden days. There's only one king in the country. There's only one God. God wants to be unique. He wants to be exclusively God. He wants to be solely God. He wants to be uniquely God. Uh, uniquely God. He, he, nobody else. Nobody else. And so in marriage, nobody else. Only one. Your husband, your wife, and the rest, no. Absolutely, categorically, No. You have to reflect God's uniqueness. God has his bride. And that we have a special bond together. The covenant of grace. So that's why our Heidelberg Catechism speaks so boldly about that. Uncleanness. All uncleanness is accursed of God. God cannot stand it because it does not meet the standard. 
it does not reflect him. Accursed. That therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same. God is detesting unfaithfulness in marriages. And also outside marriage, uncleanness, all uncleanness. He detests it. Because it is against the grain, against God himself, against how he has revealed himself. He revealed himself in such a holy, special way. That we must live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. See? The seventh commandment. The seventh commandment is about God and the church. It's about faithfulness and uniqueness as one person in marriage. Is that the only thing that people just don't divorce and don't commit adultery? No, also fornication and all sins against the seventh commandment are mentioned. Since both are body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, he commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Body and soul. Body and soul both are temple of the Holy Ghost for God's people and supposedly also for others because we all are, we are created the same way. The purpose of having a body, the purpose of having a soul is that it's a temple for the Lord, that the Lord lives there and has a connection with us. He commands us to preserve them pure and holy, that he forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatsoever can entice men eaten. Come back to that in the third point. The seventh commandment. Let's go to the second thought, the call to repent. Before I show you from the Bible that we must repent, let me first also say that sexuality is a gift of God. That's clear in the Bible. Proverbs 5, Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Lord says rejoice. Rejoice in that. Let her be as the loving hint and the pleasant role. Let her satisfy thee at all times. And be thou ravished always with her love. It's, it's, it's allowed. It's good. It's part of the creation to, to enjoy that. It's not wrong. It's not dirty. Some people think that, that sexuality is dirty, and you can, you can talk about that. I think it's important that parents speak explicitly about those things to their children. And, and tell them when they grow older that there's some beauty in there. Or, for example, 1 Corinthians 7, the wife has not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise, so the husband has not power over his own body, but the wife. See? Defraud ye not one to the other, except it be for a consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So it's allowed in the Bible. That intimacy, that closeness, also physical. That's different from animals. Although I read and saw something of albatrosses. Albatrosses are huge seabirds, right? I think of wingspan of more than two meters as well. I think a little bigger than the bald eagle. 
And when you see how they mate, it's, it's, it's impressive how they touch and show and walk around each other and, and bond. They bond. I, if I remember well, it's, they're also monogamous, right? They also, they made for life, those birds, as Trebetan swans do. And yet, it's different from people. People are supposed not to just be together, but to be a unity, spiritual unity, mental unity, and also have emotions and emotional connection to the other. Therefore, people that are engaged and, and dating have, have to be also careful. Because what begins with touching and kissing can easily go further and too far. It's a slippery slope. It, the one is asking for more and it's hard to step on the brake. So I encourage young people they are dating and engaged to be really careful because we are humans and we, we like each other and we touch each other then and we are emotionally have an emotional bond but it's hard to step on the brakes. My, my father always said, boy, when you have the desire, ask the Lord to stop you. And when the Lord stop you, ask the Lord Ask Lord to not give you the desire. So, because the desire, if there's opportunity, and if there's opportunity, no desire. That's what you want to say. An interesting question I had here is Is pornography worse than premarital sexuality? What do you think? What's worse? Pornography or premarital sexuality? You know, some say this and some say that. Let us think through. If I am angry and like to kill a person, have I killed a person? No. I had a desire to kill a person. That's bad. That desire is also bad. But I did not do it. It's different, right? You should have the desire and to do it. You don't go for jail. You don't go to jail for desire, only for the act, for the fact. That's also true for sexuality. To desire something through pornography is not doing it. It's not having that sexual, physical contact. So in that sense, premarital sexuality, if it is real, is worse than pornography. Because pornography is only in your, your mind, your, your eyes. Not, your body's not involved. And yet, premarital sexuality can be a weakness, a one-time weakness. The couple repents of and says, it was bad, it was not good that we did that. And and, and they feel so horrible and they ask forgiveness and they pray together. And maybe that pornography is going on for years and years and this, this ruining someone's mind. It, it is ruining people. It is, has way more impact on people's mind than you would think. You get 
haywired. But nevertheless, it is also a continual thing. It's not falling into sin then. It is often living in sin. So in that sense, pornography, living in sin, is way worse than that one-time thing. So, what's worse? I don't know what's worse. It's both a sin. It's both wrong. It's both against God's will. It's both something the Bible disapproves of. Because it's a sin against your own body. Or it's a sin with your own eyes. And the Lord has said to rather take out those eyes instead of continuing with that. So let me show you a few Bible verses about fighting it. And then the third point, we will just be more concrete and more specific. Fighting it. Yes, at last when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Have not repented. Did you? You repented of those sins? Have you just bowed your knees to the Lord and said, Lord, oh, we were so wrong when we were younger. Before you married or later. To repent. Repent is what? Is repent is feeling, oh, I'm sorry. I should not have done that. Repenting is more than remorse. Remorse is feeling kind of that was bad. Repenting is that you also change course. Say, no, anymore. We don't do it anymore. We made a mistake once or twice and we don't do it anymore. Repent of it. Or do you continue in that sin? This I say then walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Have a close life with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Pleasing yourself. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. So, don't walk that way. Walk in the Lord's way. And don't fulfill. Don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Don't please yourself. That's the thing, right? Pleasing myself. Not pleasing the other. Not pleasing my wife. Not pleasing my husband. Pleasing myself. That's the sin against the seven commandments. Pleasing yourself. The fornication, Ephesians 5, 3, 4. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as become a saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving offense. So it says, let it not be once named. Don't even think about it. Don't even talk about it. Don't even hint about it. It's quite clear. In the Bible, the Lord even threatens people, threatens his own people regarding this sin. You know about perseverance, right? The Lord begins the work of salvation in the hearts, and he finds a person and says, Live in your blood, live. 
And then continues to let the person persevere. How does the Lord make his people persevere? By prayer, right? By reading the Bible, by contemplating it, by the gospel preaching, by sacraments, and according to the canons of the Lord, the fifth head of doctrine, also with threatenings. The Lord also uses threats. If you do that, the consequences are like that. That also is a means of the Lord, and we have to take it seriously. Although the Lord cannot leave, let the work of his own hands go, the Lord cannot be unfaithful to himself, yet he needs to take it seriously. So here are a few of them. Mortify, kill, therefore, your members, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, the wrath of God. Do you want your dad to be angry with you? Do you want your wife to be angry? Do you like to have your, would you like others to be really wrathful and really angry with you? What about God? Angry with you? The sin against the seventh commandment is also used in the Bible as, don't do it, God will be so angry, he can't stand it. You see, he's a holy God. He wants marriage to be perfect and holy as he is holy, as he has a relationship with his church. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. God will judge. Someday God will put it in your account and confront you with that. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God do, let no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that Lord is, because that the Lord is the avenger, the avenger of all such. He takes revenge. No, we are not supposed to do that. You have to be forgiving. We have to leave it in the hands of the government. We may not retaliate ourselves and pay back, but the Lord does. But pays back also they sin. Now today, it's, the, it's even worse than 50 years ago. Of course, 50 years ago, before the sex revolution in the 60s, before that, was the, the same sins, the same pornography, and the same unfaithfulness, the same perversities. What has changed since the 60s is that people now celebrate the sin against the seventh commandment. They celebrate it. They're proud of it. Not ashamed of it. It's normal. Or people even defend it and accept the sin. You know, we um, sometimes speak about people with homosexual inclinations 
and say we love the person, but we don't love the sin, right? I, I, I think I can say that. I love the person, I respect the person, but I don't like the sin. And we have to call sin, sin, in spite of that we like the person as a person. That's not accepted anymore today. They say, if you cannot live that way, then you attack someone's identity. You cannot attack someone's identity because that doing that sin, doing that, acting, acting it, is a sin. And if you, call it, if you call it a sin, that is attacking the person's identity. That, that's killing him. That's, that's violence. They say today, it's violence. There's discrimination. You even have to promote it. The Bible tells us that we have to repent and not that we may accept it. But it's deep in the heart. It's in very deep within. Mark 7. From within. It doesn't come from the outside, from within. Out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and defile the man. You know, as parents, we like to protect our children. And that's right. We should do that. And also make sure that they're the right friends. Nevertheless, we have to realize that the sin does not come from the outside world to our children's heart. They're in the children's heart. They're within, like in the hearts of all of us by nature. The night is far spent. The days at hand, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but in, in holiness. We have to strive. It's, it's a fight. It's a war. Not only for men, only for ladies, also for children. It's a war. It's a fight. Fight the good fight of sin. Of faith. 1 Corinthians 5, and then you go to the last thought. But now I've written unto you not to keep company, and if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator. So we have to just warn people and say, if you continue with the sin, I can't be friends anymore. I've written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother, be a fornicator, or covetous, or idolater, or railer, or drunkard, or extortioner, which says one know not to eat. You can sit, not even sit at the table with the person. You have to fight it. How to specifically repent of sin against the seventh commandment? We understand now a little bit more about the seventh commandment, about repentance, and now how to specifically repent of that sin. Specifically, concretely, in detail. Or third thought. Congregation, first a few questions. I got from the book, Every Man's Battle. Do you 
tell or appreciate off-color jokes? You know what it means, right? Young people just laughing about it. That is not right. We have to approach this with caution. It is a beautiful gift of the Lord. We should not tell jokes about that. No off-color jokes. When a certain woman calls in sick or absent, do you feel down a little bit? Down a little bit? Because you like that she is also there or that he is also there. You feel kind of, mm, I miss her, I miss him. Something is wrong then. Maybe there's nothing happening. Maybe there's no sin involved directly. There's no unfaithfulness at all. But you know, it's, it's, it's coming. She is too important to you. Are you watching exercise shows and YouTube videos to get the close-up views of women? To see them? To enjoy to look at them? They are not naked. They are just decently clothed and dressed. But yet... You see them moving and exercising and you're attracted by that? Are you sexually fantasizing about the woman you have met online or at work or in school or in church? Fantasizing at night? Sin against the seventh commandment. When you are in the internet, you don't, you don't look for pornography, right? You don't want to do that. That's, that's a step too far. But you just hope that you stumble something into, that, into something. You hope that you at least find a few ladies, beautiful, in the faces and in the shapes. And you hope to catch a glimpse of someone attractive. You're not looking for someone, but are you hoping? If a certain person does not show up at work, in church, at a party, are you disappointed? Are you holding your gaze on joggers? Are you flirting in ways that do not honor your wife and God? Are you daydreaming about the woman, the man? Do you wonder what their marriage is like? If she is happy with him? He is happy with her. You would say, Pastor, don't exaggerate. Those are just such small things. There's only a look. Just do it, not doing anything. I feel kind of holy if I don't do anything. But is, is this also a sin? Well, be quoted already, Ephesians 5, verse 3, but fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be one's name to among you. Name to among you. I looked it up and tried to understand the word name to among you. It means there should not even be a hint of sexual, sex, sexual morality, not even a hint. The slightest hint is there a sin against the Holy God who has made things so beautiful and mended so well. Don't ruin it. There are lots of people. 
flashbacks and feel bad years later about the mistakes they had made in the, in the youth and, and older have damaged their own soul and relationship with their wives. There's, there's a secret in between them. They, they don't talk about it. There's something, a, a distance, constantly distant, because things have not been talked about. I also looked at the explanation of the hypercatechism of Reverend Bernardus Smeitegeld, a Dutch minister in the 1600s, 1700s. I think he had a few um, interesting things to say. Remind yourself of God's omnipresence, he says, to help you. When you feel tempted to look, to do, to say, to go, to what, to be tempted. Remind yourself of God's omnipresence. And he mentioned kind of a little s- a silly example. But let me just mention it here. He talks about a true Christian who was previously living in sin against the seventh commandment. He had an affair. And he, he felt, I can't do it anymore. He had broken with that sin. But the woman he had an affair with had not changed herself. And she kept tempting him. She kept going. Let's go there. Come, come, come with me to that, to that room, to that room in the back. In, in the back. And he went with her. And he was staying in that room and he said, I don't feel comfortable here. It's not a room that is even more secret. And she said, oh, yes. So they went to another room, more secret. And he looked around and said, I don't feel safe here. Is there not another more secret room? Said, oh, yes, they went to another one. I think four, he mentioned, mentioned four different secret rooms. And in the four rooms, he's standing there, he said, what God sees here. And that lady kind of, what? God sees us here. It kind of struck her. And according to the story of Reverend Smeitenhout, was a means for her conversion. She began to realize that wherever you go, God sees it. He is omnipresent. Omnipresent. He knows it all. Omniscient, omnipresent. Are you struggling with one of those sins? Remind yourself of God's omnipresence. Always look over your shoulder. You, wherever you go, you can't, there are no secrets there. There are no secret rooms. There are no rooms that the Lord cannot, there's an access to. He's always there. Omnipresence. Children, young people, an omnipresent God. The same thing he uh, writes is arm yourself with considering the consequences of sin. Think of the consequences, not only for your reputation or your work or whatever it is. Also think of, if I continue this sin and I do not repent of the sin, I go to hell. And he has also kind of an interesting example for that as well. There was a man who proposed to sin and the woman 
involved, refused. No. No. But he kept asking, come on, this is not bad, nobody will know. He persisted. And finally she said, okay. Okay. Under one condition. I go with you under one condition. He said, okay, what is it? She said, if you keep your finger only half an hour in this flame of this candle, only half an hour, only your finger, not, not your whole body, not forever, only your finger. He said, that's, that, that's strange. I've never, never heard of that. No, she said, no. But that, that, that's what it is. If, if that's not worth it, if, if, if you want me, and you can't even pay with one finger, half an hour in the flame, then what? What are you talking about? So you, you understand it, right? To always experience the wrath of God in an unquenchable fire for your whole body. So arm yourself. When people do those proposals, if you're tempted to sin, remind yourself of God's presence and remind yourself of the consequences. If you live in a sin, do not repent of a sin, on purpose, on purpose sin, the consequences are eternal fire and indignation of God. The third thing he mentioned is prayer. He says, pray often, pray often. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So when that sin comes your way, you say, Oh Lord, clean, create me a clean heart, O God. Give me a clean heart. Don't let me not do it. Protect me, Lord. Create, create a clean heart in me. And make a covenant with your eyes. Is that also an, an app? Covenant eyes to protect your computer? I believe so. That, that is an expression from Job. Expression from, from Job 31 verse 1. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? So make a covenant with your eyes. You and your eyes. Say eyes. You, you, your two eyes there. I want you. But let's, make a, let, let's make a deal. Uh, when you're attracted by, by, by some, something in this area, just look the other way. Make cover with your eyes. Make a, a commitment with your eyes. Makes sense, no? With the slightest temptation, repeat for yourself, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death and avoid to be idle. Avoid to just be by yourself at your computer and being bored and having no password on there. You just put a password on there. Avoid to be idle. Avoid bad company. Seek the company of them that fight sin. See, it's a war. And we need to repent. Have you sinned against the seventh commandment? Smeitegeld is asking. And he says, yes, then take refuge unto Christ and, re- and 
and, and confess your sins unto him. I looked over what he actually said, repent, and also take refuge unto Christ. Without any limitations, he says, you know, whoever you are, when you feel tempted, take refuge unto the Lord Jesus. Not first this or that, no, now. Take refuge unto the Lord Jesus and confess your sins to him. Don't wait. Don't wait until it is real. Don't wait until you think it is given. No, stop it now. Take refuge unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon his name, Son of David. Remember me and leave that sin alone. Repent ye, return ye, turn ye. Why would you die? And people of God, remember, you have perfect obedience of Christ. Therefore, be holy, because God is holy, because you are holy, because you have a new heart. So live also accordingly. Congregation, young friends, let me close with a text from Matthew 5. And if the right eye offend thee, pluck it out. Not literally, of course. It's something brings you all the time to a certain place, to a certain person in, 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 in danger, refuse to go there. Find a way to avoid that. Make it difficult for yourself. Fight the good fight. Remember that. And if the, the right offend thee, plug it out and cast it from thee. Cast it from thee, far away. For it is, prof, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish. And now that thy whole body should be cast into hell. See, the Lord Jesus has spoken quite a bit about hell. More than anyone else in the Bible. And often regarding this sin, the seventh commandment. So keep in mind, it's meant to be beautiful. It's an in, it's institution of the Lord to be together. To help each other, to assist each other in all things, this life and a better life. It's meant to avoid fornication. It's meant to raise children together. Not, it's, not, it's not meant to break, to break. So pray for that. And again, if you have sinned against this commandment, and you did, take refuge unto the Lord Jesus. Amen.